Welcome to Earth News Interviews, the podcast where we sit down with the experts and discuss the biggest questions and discoveries in the Earth Sciences today. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Earth News Interviews. Today, it's just Sophia and I, and we've got something special planned for our final episode of the year. Yes, we do. We figured this would be kind of a good opportunity to regroup. And also, it's kind of hard to get props at this time because, you know, the holidays, kids and stuff. (laughs) Very true. Yeah. And also, we realized, you know, we haven't actually like introduced ourselves, which was pointed out to us a while ago. But we never really got around to it. I don't know why. Just the episodes. We just figured we wouldn't want to like fill them up with with time of like us introducing ourselves when we had really interesting speakers but yeah I guess we're just we're excited for them yeah anyway Sophia what is your background where uh what 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 made you start in the earth sciences oh thanks the, the first the first guest question I should be ready for this because I I did ask it many times um what got me interested in earth sciences uh well it was really just kind of a the fact that I really enjoyed all of the sciences and I couldn't pick between one or the other I was a huge like chemistry physics and bio fan bio less actually but but chemistry and physics and I was like what can I do that will kind of put this all together and I don't have to choose and I was like earth sciences this is it and yeah so I went into it I actually went into geophysics first uh and yeah I just kind of went whenever when I got started with the earth sciences department at U of T I was just like, yeah, this is it. This is awesome. Had a lot of fun, great courses. And I like that it was applied too. So that's what got me into earth sciences. What about you, Dean? <laughs> um, I honestly just, I, I, I liked everything that I took my first year. Mm-hmm. There was like a month where I wanted to go into microbiology and work with CRISPR. There was a month where I wanted to go into astrophysics. <laughs> there was a month where I wanted to go into like, I don't know, just like everything. And then just like earth sciences kind of, I had th- that month just kept lasting and lasting and, and it yeah. exists even today. So yeah, I don't know. The, the, uh, I also kind of feel somewhat, somewhat of a, like a generational calling to, to answer questions about uh, climate change. And I also like the deep perspectives of geology, um, like having this context to my life um, where I exist in time and space. And that's a lot, largely earth, earth science. So mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, that is so true. At first, like, it feels like being, like, a kid at a candy store just because earth science has so much to offer and you can kind of pick anything. But then, yeah, there's... It's it's really, really cool. Not to... I mean, our whole podcast is about earth science. So, I mean, I don't have to overstate how much <laughs> Dean and I enjoy what we're studying. But I guess another thing that people... Uh, that I guess we've gotten questions about is why we started the podcast anyway. And... I remember having a conversation with Dean last year. We were like, science communication is awesome. And we both listen to podcasts. And Dean actually introduced me to a couple that I listen to sometimes, like uh, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe um, and uh, some other podcasts that I that I listen to not, that aren't earth science related. But anyway, we thought, okay, this is pretty cool. There aren't that many earth science, earth science podcasts out there. I think there's one from... Uh, Colorado Boulder there's there's one really good one um that I know of but yeah so we thought that this would be kind of a great opportunity to 
uh, talk about earth science and kind of make it more mainstream. Yeah, when the pandemic hit, I mean, we had <laughs> yeah. a lot more time on our hands. <laughs> that too, that the too. to delay it kind of went away. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I guess, yeah, for our special episode, we are going to uh, do a little bit of a spitball uh, conversation where the two of us picked three new earth science discoveries or recent ones i guess in the past three years i don't know how far back yours go dean i just 2020 i just picked some from 2020 oh nice nice okay uh yeah so uh neither of us know each others or like the news stories that that um the other person picked so it'll be our like raw reaction to them so we'll be asking a lot of questions not too hard ones hopefully <laughs> uh we we just want to we just want to make it make it clear that we're by far not experts in the matter um, but we did do summaries of each discovery, and we're going to kind of talk about it. And yeah. Yeah, and this is very off the cuff, once again. Mm-hmm. Probably going to be minimal editing. Uh, we're recording this on the 30th. Well, and we'll see how it turns out. The minimal editing, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we, we, might, we might have to take that back, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. For now, it's going well. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is listenable still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, cool. So who wants to go first? I can go. I can go first. All right. Go for it. Great. <clears throat> All right. So you know that we have one of the world's oldest rocks in our basement, right? Actually, no. Really? Okay, no, I so didn't know. It's the Acosta Nice and it's from the Northwest Territories and it was metamorphosed beneath some really ancient mountains and that mm-hmm. and that final crystallization uh, is has been dated to at least four billion years old and there's some wow. there's some dates that are a little bit older but people are contesting the methods like over a decade later so the conservative estimate is like four billion years old Wow um, and they, they they figure that out through uranium lead dating in the, its zircon crystals mm-hmm. Now, how old do you think the oldest material on Earth is? And yes, this is a trick question. <laughs> the oldest material on Earth? Yes. Um, is it like the age of the Earth? I'm guessing. Is that the trick? 4. So 4.5 million years old? Actually, it's older. What? Okay. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually 7.5 billion years old. Wow. Did we date that? Yes. So the oldest material on Earth is a meteorite. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so so researchers looked at a bunch of silicon carbide carbide grains mm-hmm. from the Murchison meteorite, which is a meteorite that fell in Australia in 1969. And so what they did was they measured the ratio of cosmogenic isotope neon-21. Cosmogenic isotopes are formed when cosmic rays interact with atoms in situ. And so the silicon, which hit with cosmic rays over long periods of time, can become neon 21, which is also, which is stable. And so we can measure the ratio of silicon to neon 21. And given a constant rate of cosmic rays, you can approximate how long it took for the carbon, for the silicon carbide grains to have that much neon twenty one, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so they they measured a whole bunch of different grains. The oldest one was seven point five, and this is these 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 brain or these grains are, you know, just kind of the remnants of leftover stellar explosions, the deaths of stars. Um, they ranged. Some of them were as, as you know in this meteorite. Some of the grains in there are as old as our solar system. Some of them are a little bit older than the solar system, and the oldest was seven point five billion, um, almost three billion years older than our sun. Uh, so geologists actually also use this technique to tell how long an outcrop has been exposed to the surface. Uh, cosmic rays can, you know, bombard material up to ten meters deep sometimes, and so you can tell how long uh, a rock outcrop has been at the surface using that same method, as long as it's, you know, how long it's been exposed to those cosmic rays. But, so yeah, 7.5 billion years old, that's pretty long. And another interesting result from this study, so you know how we have generational booms um, in our population, like lots of births all at once. We have like the baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, like just kind of rise and fall with like birth increases. So there's this debate, um, among astronomers and cosmologists, but whether stars are born and die at a constant rate, or if their births and deaths kind of cluster, like like our generations of people do. Are there like generations of stars? So these pre-solar mm-hmm. grains, most of them were not pre-solar, but like, I think like 10% of them were older than our sun. So they came from other dead stars, um, but like these grains were formed from other dead stars. So those pre-solar grains had a bit of a range, some of them just a little bit older than the sun, um, and the oldest one, 7.5 billion years old. Uh, But what they noticed was that most of the pre-solar grains clustered into a generation, and it turns out that our sun may actually be at the tail end of a generational boom, which lasted about 300 million years. That's so cool. So our sun is a baby boomer. That's hilarious to think that even stars can be grouped in these generally like stereotypic categories. Yeah, I don't really know enough about galactic evolutions to like know what kind of forces would like you know kind of alter that background rate to to kind of cluster like encourage new formations here and discourage them you know at this point in time to you know cluster them up. But I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds like there's, like, some potential for more research into that area. Like, seeing what actually causes these these bursts of, of stars forming all of a sudden at once. And whether there's, like, you know how there's, like, personalities associated with the different generations? Like, I don't know, Gen, Gen Xers are millennials on their phones always. Or, for instance, I don't know, baby, you know, like, things like that, like, stereotypes, whether there's something like that for it's always negative based on the people who exactly it's always yeah because it's because the stereotypes are always coming from people not within that generation so i wonder if like different stars also have their own little like things i don't know like suns form during this generational cluster are they have like more flare-ups yeah they probably say the younger suns have all these anger yeah exactly <laughs> maturity things like that that's really cool though that we can actually date something that's so old yeah i i have question of like how how do they know how 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 confident are they that like the background cosmic rays are like constant 
throughout that time and don't like suddenly say cluster up or or disperse and become less constant or less less concentrated over periods of time like i don't know like i can just Im- imagine i don't know there's got to be a lot of uncertainty with that but it's really cool i'm sure there's all kinds of like controls mm-hmm. that they have for people who study this kind of stuff yeah because if the meteorite comes from outer space and like cosmic rays wouldn't always be constant especially if it's coming from another solar system now that would be cool to figure out by the way, did the article mention anything about like the composition of the meteorite, whether like how different it was from our Earth? Well, it was it was the the grains themselves were like there's silicon carbide, which is SC mm-hmm. SIC. So just those two um, atoms. The stuff around it was you know all kinds of other stuff that had been collected from within our solar system. So they actually had to you know use acid and and burn away all the the other stuff, the more recent stuff, they made it into like a paste that they just said smelled like rotten eggs. It sucks how you have to like <laughs> destroy a sample in order to do dating on it. Yeah, but it's just, yeah, just yeah, the fact, yeah, they grind mm-hmm. up the sample too and basically homogenize it mm-hmm. into this powder. But yeah, I, I just think it's so cool. Something so old, older than our sun mm-hmm. just being on the earth. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Really cool article. Yeah, so w- what you got for me? You, you, your turn. Okay, so my news story actually has a little bit of a personal touch on it. So uh, we're going to talk about glaciers. So the personal touch is as a kid, like my family and I, we would go to the Rocky Mountains. We lived in Saskatoon, so it was only like an eight-hour drive to the Rockies. And we would go on these glacier hikes where, you know, you'd have to like lather on the sunscreen. You have to wear sunglasses because otherwise like the reflection is... You know, just it's just blinding. So anyway, one thing that I found really interesting, and as a kid, I'd always ask my dad about this, is why the supposed like, glaciers, you would think, okay, they're supposed to be white, and it's just like a snow cover, and it's icy. But the glaciers that we went on, they had these like red patches on them. And I was wondering, like, what what are these red patches? And as I found out later, that uh, the red patches were actually alive. They were microorganisms. They were this red-colored algae that would turn red to protect itself from UV light that was like beaming down from the sun. And these algae would essentially, I mean, they just, you know, uh, conducted photosynthesis as a normal plant would. And uh, yeah, they would release oxygen. So they were kind of, in in a sense, they were a a carbon sink, but at the same time, um, they didn't do any good for global cooling because if you have, the whole whole problem with having these microorganisms on the ice is that they reduce the albedo of the ice, the reflectivity. So the sunlight isn't uh, reflected as well. So they actually warm up the, the ice and it leads to glacial melting and so on and so forth. But this actually deals, the paper that I found deals with a different microorganism that actually lives underneath these glaciers and actually doesn't even see the light of day or oxygen. So uh, researchers Eric Dunham and his mentor Eric Boyd, they found these living organisms that thrive underneath glaciers. Now, I don't think they were the, actually the discoverers of these organisms, organisms, but they did find out something cool about them. So they took samples of these organisms from glaciers in Canada and in Iceland, and uh, the rock that the 
a glacier was overlying in Canada was this limestone rock. That's mainly what the Rockies are made out of. And in Iceland, I mean, we know it's a volcanic island, so there's a lot of basalt there. Still very, uh, very silica-rich rock, but more mafic. Now, what they found was that these organisms would produce a different amount of um, biomass depending on what rock was underlying the glacier. Now, how they found this out was these organisms, these microorganisms, they thrive off of hydrogen that's produced when glacial melt that's underneath the glaciers uh, mixes with the silicon that's in the limestone rock or um, or the basalt. And they found that hydrogen output is larger with the basaltic rock than with the limestone. So the production of H2 is higher when basalt is underlying the, the glaciers. But what these organisms do, which is really cool, is they take that hydrogen, they take CO2 from the air, and then they fix that CO2 to the hydrogen and they create biomass. So hydrocarbons that they feed off of and they grow and they replicate. Wow. So yeah, yeah. And they they use no solar energy. They don't need, I mean, they can't even live in, they, they die if you expose them to oxygen. Mm-hmm. So there are these really kind of, I guess what we call them in, in earth science is extremophiles because they live in very extreme conditions. And you think, I mean, we know these snowball earth periods happen throughout the history of the earth. You wonder if these were the organisms that were thriving where, where the earth was, you know, covered in glaciers. What was like, what was the last time? Like 300 million years ago or a little over that 300, 400 million years, I think. Yeah. We had snowball earth. And then even like in recent history, I guess, like, what is it like 11,000 years ago, we had the the ice age where most of Canada, even yeah, Toronto is covered in ice. So uh, yeah, it was very, very cool uh, that they found this. And it was, and it was cool to think about these bacteria or these microorganisms as potentially carbon sinks, if they can take or fix a lot of carbon from, from the atmosphere and be some like cool potential. Mm-hmm. Um But yeah, really cool to see that there's these, you know, living things living in extreme conditions that, you know, you would think, okay, there's no oxygen, there's no, um, there's no sunlight. Are these, it it almost seems like these uh, organisms are kind of alien to the typical life forms. Well, that's an also my, my initial reaction is like, could there be those aliens out there like hitching a ride on comets because comets have lots of ice. Oh yeah. I wonder if these like extremophiles could exist you know, um, on comets, interstellar comets, even um, just kind of surviving beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. Right. Because like, what do they really need? To, like, they what do they need to survive? They need hydrogen and they need meltwater. So that's actually, well, they need meltwater and then they need the, the silicon rich rock. But astronomers have found planets with those three ingredients, mm-hmm. except for maybe the meltwater. Right. Because you have ice on Mars and you have ice on like one of Saturn's moons. Yeah, you definitely you have you have meltwater, like say you're Europa and, and like the tidal forces kind of heat the interior, like you know, kind of like how when you knead clay, it incre- it creates heat from the friction and that kind of melts the the ice into liquid. So yeah, that kind of that kind of condition would definitely exist. I know on on Europa for certain. That is so true. Yeah, I didn't think about how 
we don't like, you don't you don't even technically need the the sunlight to warm up the glacier for meltwater to exist. You just need enough friction that creates heat as a byproduct. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. That has a lot of implications. And also just like how life could have, you know, survived snowball earths, as you were saying, or mm-hmm. um, to carry over because like there's periods of like snowball earth where, you know, it's possible photosynthesis pretty much completely halted during periods. And most of the, the more recent uh, snowball earths, I know they didn't last more than like, say, 10 million years. Which is still like a crazy amount of time. But like the older ones were like 100 million years or 300 million years. Yeah. The Huronian glaciation. Is this just your way of doing a really awesome segue? <laughs> yeah. I did tell you what the uh, topic was for item two, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Actually, we no, we we should be we should be intellectually honest here. We we didn't we don't know each other's topics, but very very generally we do. Yeah, I was like snowball earth. Yeah, and I just remember that now actually, and you were talking about it, so I was like, oh, okay, this is a great segue. Yeah, we just didn't want to make sure our accidentally overlap our stories. Yeah, exactly. <sighs> but yeah, I really like the the implications of that one for you know extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. Also, glaciers are just so cool. I was here. I was thinking, like, hey, it's probably some sort of like rust somehow, like precipitated iron on top of these glaciers turned red. It does look like that. Yeah. What I find fascinating though is like I was doing some research into it, and there's very like different names for that like red algae on top. Like some more like soft names are like, oh, like uh, I think they call it like pink snow or like dewy snow, and then the other name for it was like bloody snow. And I was like, whoa, whoa, okay, hold on. <laughs> It kind of gives you a different reaction also. Like the pink snow. It's like, oh, it's kind of nice. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, how we were going to go to Australia before. Don't remind me. Oh, gosh. This reminds me. I was so, I also had like a separate trip kind of planned like on the way there to go to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And there's there's this this bay there that has like these orange rocks. And that was like, that sounded really cool to me until I learned that it was it was just lichen growing on the rocks, giving it an orange color. <laughs> Disappointing. Is that Bay of Sharks? Uh, no, that Bay of Sharks is like Western Australia. Um, this is, I forget, it's some kind of bay. I totally forget now. I've like pushed everything about Australia and New Zealand out of my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so be- better not think about it. With this disappointment. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> Australia, another year, sometime before I die. <laughs> Let's yeah, let's hope. We got plenty of time before that. Yeah, hopefully. Unless another snowballer happens. There's still another day in 2020. You don't know how long we're going to be here. <laughs> yeah, we we're actually talking about that before. Like <laughs> just one more day. <laughs> Survive one more day. <laughs> All right, item number 2, Snowball Earth. All right. So, let me let me preface this one. Sudbury Basin. It's actually a crater. We've been there for whitefish. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, formed by an impact 1.849 billion years ago. It's pretty exact. The asteroid that hit it, estimated to be the largest impact, of uh, largest asteroid to hit the Earth that we know about. Mm-hmm. Then there's Redford Crater, which I got to see in South Africa. That's the world's largest crater. So that was 300 kilometers w- wide when it was formed. And it's also oldest crater at 2.023 billion years old until 2020 happened and we found an even older crater what yeah so team of scientists have dated the yarrabubba crater in australia yarrabubba i like that that's funny fun fact my dad used to call me bubba as a nickname 
<laughs> How's that for rural America? Great name. <laughs> um, so that one's estimated to be now 2.229 billion years old. That's like over 200 million years older than the Redford crater. Wow. So this gives it the title of the oldest crater on Earth. And so this impact date actually coincides with the beginning of the thawing of the Huronian glaciation, which is that really old snowball earth period, Mm -hmm. um, as we were talking about. Um, And so these researchers can't help but think, hey, I wonder if that caused the thawing, if that impact caused the thawing. So the Huronian glaciation was a period of time. The entire planet was covered in snow and ice for up to 300 million years. Um, It's believed to have been caused by the Great Oxygenation Event, um, which was a dramatic increase in oxygen, which would have in turn led to a dramatic decrease in methane, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. And since the sun was a lot dimmer back then, the greenhouse gases really had to pull their weight um, to keep the earth warm and not frozen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the decrease in that really just dropped the temperature and... It's snowball Earth for hundreds of millions of years. So, as you were saying, you have this albedo effect. Once, once you, you know, have all of Earth white for the most part, um, it's reflecting majority of the Earth's light rays back out into space and preventing any kind of warming from happening. Mm, it's like a, like a positive feedback loop. Yeah, exactly. It's a positive feedback loop that's just kind of reinforced, kind of like how Venus has like you know a positive feedback loop for warming. Can't get out of that runaway greenhouse effect. Before we had this impact hypothesis, the main reason that people said for the Earth getting out of that period was, so you know how carbon dioxide is constantly being pumped into the atmosphere over long periods of time by volcanism. Mm -hmm. So like magma is coming up from the mantle, it's adding water, and it's adding carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. So can you hear my bird, by the way? No, I can't. Was that your bird? I thought that was just your microphone, like, failing on us. No, she's going, Oh. (laughs) Wait, it's a she? I thought Max was a he. I have two birds. (gasps) Okay, uh, sorry, not to digress. (laughs) I was about to ask you about your bird. (laughs) Okay, so, what was I going to say? So, yeah, they're wondering, like, how we got out of this. So, back then, before this impact hypothesis, you have carbon dioxide constantly going to the atmosphere from volcanism over long periods of time. And that carbon dioxide is removed mainly via rock weathering Mm -hmm. because it's interacting with the rocks, exposed rocks, and being sequestered and reburied. But if all the rocks are covered by ice, then they can't draw down that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so the volcanoes are constantly adding more carbon dioxide and it's not getting removed. So eventually they're saying that, you know, enough carbon dioxide finally built up and heated the earth enough to escape the the big uh, snowball earth. Mm-hmm. So this, but now, so now they have also this theory, which also this if you have a an impact on this snowball earth, instantly vaporizing a, a huge amount of of ice, water vapor itself is also a very potent greenhouse gas, and so they're wondering maybe this event contributed to or even kick-started the thawing of the Huronian glaciation, which I think is pretty cool. 
the the idea that you have this kind of sudden event, you know, fortuitously um, suddenly turn the history of the Earth back toward life, toward biodiversity, because it was just like there was no photosynthesis during this time. It's just like cyanobacteria, mm-hmm. you know, pumping up toxins and well, to them, oxygen is a toxin. I, I disagree with them. I like oxygen. <laughs> That is, yeah, you're you're gonna have a debate with these microorganisms about what is what is the better what is the better fuel source. Oxygen is way more efficient. <laughs> it's like a never never ending debate. That is yeah. yeah, that is very cool. I think it's it just kind of reminds me of I think our the last episode where we talked about like catastrophism versus gradualism and what mm-hmm. is really behind these like really like huge events in earth's history like snowball earth or the thawing of snowball earth like which one is it is it like the like the gradual accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere or is it this you know giant crater i'm assuming it was big i mean if it led to the vapor instant vaporization of a bunch of ice that's yeah, pretty big yeah it's it's pretty big crater yeah. I, i'm not sure if that's the one we would have seen if we had gone i know a crater was on our itinerary mm-hmm. <sighs> but yeah <laughs> i know we're, we're back we're back to uh we're back to daydreaming about australia again <laughs> maybe that'll be like a maybe that'll be a, the new i guess stop one of the upcoming field trips yeah i mean if we now have the oldest crater in australia that's like a must-see oh yeah absolutely australia is in for a massive tour season with a bunch of geologists they have such old geology they already have such huge tours <laughs> that is very true yeah from Adelaide's in the shark bay oh man yeah okay anyway let's move away from australia anyway. <laughs> australia has very cool geology including this old crater that's an awesome news story okay cool yeah. okay so uh, i guess moving away from australia let's move to a little bit of a archaeological find in what used to be the Fertile Crescent. I've been reading this book by Jared Diamond, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel, which kind of reminded me of this. And it basically just talks about, you know, the inception of civilization, why uh, Western societies progressed faster than others. But anyway, so I thought it kind of connected to this. Mm-hmm. Because this uh, news story, um, this geological news story, comes from what used to be the Fertile Crescent. Okay, so... One of the main jobs of sedimentary stratigraphers is to try to correlate strata of sediments across the world and date them to a particular time period. Most of the time, there's no surprises, which is maybe why uh, sedimentology gets a bad rep. (laughs) Maybe that's why, but there's, yeah, usually no surprises. We know the Ordovician comes before the Silurian, the Silurian comes before the Devonian, so on and so forth. But there's a recent finding that was quite unexpected in the archaeological site of Teldor in the northern uh, Mediterranean bordering part of Israel. So these researchers that were from the Scripps Center of Marine Archaeology found a layer that shouldn't have been there, which was very interesting. Essentially what they did is they went to um, the, the Mediterranean coast, which actually used to be a lot more uh, westward than it was. Uh, and they took out a nine meter deep borehole or long sediment core. And they looked through the strata and they surprisingly found that one of the beds, which was 20 to 35 centimeters thick, that was dated to about 9,500 years ago, had shells like marine shells in it and also some sand where 
it really had no business being. Why do you ask? It was out of place, like out of time. Well, yeah, sort of. It wasn't out of time. It was it was out of place. Yeah. It's- okay, I'm gonna guess aliens. <laughs> close, close. So uh. why? Okay, so this why they found that this was weird is because the the layer of marine sediments like sands and shells was in a, a geologically historical bed of uh, mud and fine-grained clay and mud-like sediments. That was from the wetland that was there 10,000 years ago. And actually that wetland was there for for thousands of years before that and and after as well. But basically this marine sediments has no business being where wetland is. Now, what they figured is that for all of these marine sediments and sand to travel all that distance, which from the original coast that was there 10,000 years ago, that coast was at least uh, 1.5 kilometers away from where they took this borehole out. Um, they figured that it must have been a tsunami that brought this marine sediment and shells over all that distance. And not only was it a tsunami, but it was a really big one because how else are you going to, one, travel at least 1.5 kilometers inland and also bring 20 to 35 centimeters of this like marine material. Wow, that's a lot of deposit. Yeah. Over all that period of over all that distance. Wow. Mm-hmm. Especially yeah, especially when you think about I don't know the scale of how big a tsunami can be, but like I just thinking about like I have a, I have a ruler in my hand right now. I'm I'm actually I'm just showing up up to the screen. Like, can you imagine like this much sediment being brought up with the tsunami? Yeah, like suspended in a whole bunch of liquid as the, the whole way. Yeah, and they figured like there were uh, records of tsunamis before this, or at least like evidence for it. But this one was particularly large and it ranged, I think they estimated it to be from like 16 to 40 meters in height. And uh, in, in that area, actually, the cause of tsunami is, uh, is the Dead Sea Fault that's uh, bordering Israel mm-hmm. and also submarine landslides that could have happened off the coast um, of the continental margin. So that could have also been the cause of this of this tsunami. But why it was an archeo- a cool archaeological finding was because during the time period that this tsunami happened in, it should have been, or at least they should have found this pre-pottery, Neolithic, or sorry, Neolithic pre-pottery. That's what it is. Can you imagine like there's there's a time period called pre-pottery? I never knew that. <laughs> it's It's literally just marking the time before pottery existed. <laughs> so they called it pre-pottery for lack of a better name. So there should have been in that area, there should have been a, a bunch of these, you know, clues for civilization in the, in the pre-pottery Neolithic era. But they didn't find it, but they found it in like strata later on. So it just kind of showed that there was probably a civilization that was there. Um, tsunami happened, wiped it out, natural disaster. And then people came back and settled in that area. And then we got the Neolithic pottery era. And pottery is really important. It is. It is. I like going to museums and looking at pottery. It's always kind of cool, especially especially Greek pottery. It has a long like evolutionary history and just like that trend. Yeah. I find it fascinating how like humans were just like, oh yeah, like we need vessels to put things in. Now we use plastic, but pottery's cool. Yeah. This tsunami thing reminds me of our very first episode where we talked about the huge tsunami, you know, um, going up from the Yucatan Peninsula 
all the way up to, uh, well, nowadays, uh, Kansas, and Dakotas, mm -hmm. 100 yeah. meter high, I think it was. So mm -hmm. yeah, 60, if it's 40, to, this one was 40 to 60, that's like half that height, didn't even need an asteroid to generate that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just like crazy yeah. to me. But those things exist without any need for external influence. Yeah, the the Earth is not was not a fun place to to live in back then. I feel like if you lived on that, I mean, even now, like there's there's obviously natural disasters happening pretty frequently, but still, Earth is not you know a friendly place when it comes to these natural disasters. Yeah, that's a cool story. I like that. It was very cool because you know, like I I just imagine you know being on this research team, you're kind of expecting you know, you know your regular wetlands sediments and clays and it's like oh my gosh what is this doing here shells hmm. well you bring up wetlands wow these segues are getting better and better how did this happen again <laughs> this is too perfect we didn't plan it we promise okay this isn't actually this isn't actually specifically wetlands but i can i can okay. bring it in somehow yeah i'll, I'll, I'll figure out a way <laughs> so um forest regrowth um, this last item I chose because it's somewhat related to my thesis topic, which is like carbon sequestration differences in vegetation or, or the type of soil that you're in, a marsh or swamp or like different kinds of wetlands. So you know how awesome trees are, right? Don't I know it. Favorite thing ever, right? There was this, there was this meme I saw that said, um, if trees emitted Wi-Fi, we'd be, planting, we'd be planting them absolutely everywhere and really quickly. Too bad they only give us oxygen. Aww. <laughs> You're not enough trees. Do better. So um, the 2015 Paris Climate Accord set targets to restore more than 850 million acres of forests, mostly through planting. And why would they do that? Because trees take carbon dioxide out of the air, out of the atmosphere, and use it to build themselves up. Um, it's essentially a transfer of carbon from the atmosphere to the biosphere, which is the system of all living things. And when they die, a portion of that carbon also gets buried into the soil rather than returning back into the atmosphere through decomposition. And this is especially true in oxygen-depleted conditions, such as swamps. There it is. There it is. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's really good to grow trees. I mean, you're, you're taking it out of the atmosphere, which and it's a greenhouse gas in the, in the atmosphere, whether it's carbon dioxide, CO2, or whether it's uh, methane, carbon, you want to get out of the atmosphere, generally. Um, so the governments around the world are planting trees now, like crazy, and including Ontario. As an aside, Ontario set a $4.7 million annual budget in 2008, and they're with the goal of planting 50 million trees in the province by 2025. The Ford government cut this in 2019, unfortunately, but the federal government jumped in to foot the bill for the next four years. Hmm, very nice. Now, the importance of planting trees artificially has been questioned by some researchers who are concerned that not all these governments and organizations will be that effective. Artificial planting programs don't always have the most knowledgeable and experienced people making the decisions. And even if they do, they can make mistakes. Sometimes they cut corners for bureaucratic or fiscal reasons. And that could result in monocultures, which is when the environment is dominated by only a handful of tree or vegetation varieties. So very low in biodiversity. It could also result in non-native trees being planted where they shouldn't. Um, and that those trees may just die because they can't be there. Um, they 
it's not where they can go and they're not where they can thrive. And so it's a waste of resources or worse, they could thrive and disrupt and harm the, the biodiversity of the forests that are already there. And we don't want to hurt the, the forests that are already there. So these researchers are saying that in most cases, we should actually probably just leave the land alone and let the trees reclaim it naturally. We don't have to actively plant. We just need to A, stop deforesting, stop taking away the forest that we have, and B, stop fighting them back. Just set aside, fence in this area and say, you guys, let the trees come back here and fully forest, forest out this area. And so a study was published in July of this year in Nature, which found that naturally grown forests were severely undervalued in last year's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They find that their forest carbon accumulation rates from natural regrowth are actually 32% too low, and regarding tropical forests specifically, 53% too low when it comes to that carbon accumulation. So they they are claiming that they severely undervalued the natural regrowth. So the study found that naturally regrown trees have higher biodiversity than artificially planted. They call them plantations, uh, forest plantations. This also gives them more stability, more staying power. Um, They have more carbon in their soil. So the plants are sequestering greater amounts of, of carbon. It's staying there. And also it's being put there at faster rates than artificial forests. So they took, they looked at over 11,000 measurements of carbon uptake from regrowing forests around the world to, to come to this conclusion. And they located about 1.67 billion acres around the world that could be used or set aside to let forests reclaim on their own. And that's like double the amount of what Paris Climate Accord had said we need to, you know, 850 million acres. This is, this is coming to 1.67 billion acres that we should set aside. So that's twice as much. But they say that that these natural forests um, would sequester um, 73 billion tons of carbon through 2050 if, if we let them do it. And to put that in perspective, that is a total of seven years of our current industrial emissions. So seven years out of that next 30 years could be, you know... Um, negated through this through this regrowth strategy so that's that's a really important contribution to that fight and it's considered the single largest natural climate solution Mm. and of course they say they they say that you know sometimes soil is bad sometimes um certain trees have to be planted in a methodical way to you know recondition the soil so that other types of trees can come in so there there are certainly uses for uh focused planting strategies um, if they're you know properly done, but just overall in, in, in a lot of areas just surrounding forests, just let the forest come back on their own. They're really efficient at doing it. They throw their seeds pretty far down the line. They'll sprout up really fast. And they're and they're talking about how certain tree varieties, I mean, they're really going to benefit from the increased carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere. We're at like is it like 400 parts per million mm-hmm. now? I think. Um, yeah, the, so some tree varieties are just going to absorb that carbon dioxide so fast, shoot up like bamboo, and just spread and keep going, sprinting across the landscape yeah. over the next decades. Yeah, it's like what happened in the Carboniferous, why so many trees sprouted, because there's so much carbon in the atmosphere. They're like, ate it up. Yeah, and 
I mean, no competition, really. Mm -hmm. That's pretty interesting, though. Um, as long as they're not competing against us, I mean. Yeah, we're really we're really irrelevant here. Nature is nature has figured out how to grow and thrive over the past billions of years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just thinking about it, they're they're constantly throwing all these different varieties of seeds across, you know, the landscape, um, and just like natural selection will figure out which which trees which of those seeds are going to do well in that soil where they land and which ones won't i mean just just let uh, natural selection the, the the system that's there already take over and repopulate i just yeah i think that's that's really cool how you know we can make a lot of mistakes in our our systems of organization we can be overly confident in our understanding of these systems and so it may be safer to just let them let them do their thing in a lot of situations around the world. I'm skeptical about it being like a something that is an efficient solution because true it's going to take longer without our intervention, but at least uh, the benefit that I can see is if people see that this is well a a free solution and b you said that in the in the article they said that there was, I don't know, twice as much land that could be put to like natural regrowth than was agreed to in the in the Paris Climate Agreement. Like, if there's that incentive, and B, you don't really have to, you know, pay any extra money in order to to fund the regrowth of forests, and I feel like people will get behind it. Yeah, I, it's it's I don't I don't think it'd take like no extra money because you're you're telling people not to increase their profits or even decrease their profits in some way. So like Brazil as an as an instance is if they just like stopped their current deforestation, the trees would like, cause they're tropical forests, they would spring back within decades and it'd be like nothing mm -hmm. happened. It's, it's very resilient and they can, and they can bring themselves back, but it, it doesn't really cost nothing per se in, in the, in the context of that country and that country's economy and the people there. So I think this is still asking a lot of people to stop, you know, cutting, they, they want their, their, cattle grazing area they want to expand it or they they want to keep the one that the, the area that mm -hmm. they have to tell to tell someone that you know they they have to you know let, let this this forest take over their this land mm -hmm. here could be you know better traditionally maybe say lands that they've used for the last couple hundred years since we've deforested a lot of these areas may not be may not go over so well but it's it's still easier than saying we're also going to pay for all these trees mm -hmm. to plant here. Right. Yeah. I guess yeah, there's like two sides, two sides of a coin. You're right. Um, okay. Yeah. So that was, yeah, the really cool news article. Really like that one. The last one that I have is talking about a question in earth science that has been raised and answered many times, but you know, even after even after this article, I'm not really sure what the what the answer is. But you know, we're getting a little bit closer to revealing the mystery. Such as science. <laughs> yes, exactly. That was actually actually that's my last phrase in my little notes. It's like you know, as science always is. <laughs> There's a lot of factors, so uh, I'm not going to delay. You know, the anticipation is rising. I know. So. Uh, <laughs> There's kind of two schools of thought when when it comes to where the water on Earth came from. So school number one says that water came from Earth from outer space, from outside the solar system carried by cooler asteroids or comets. School number two 
says that water already existed in the earth and all it took was the differentiation of earth's material into the inner core mantle and crust to bring the lighter water or the building blocks for water out of the out of the earth and then into our oceans and there's you know some other theories about uh rain and again everything comes comes back to greenhouse gases in our atmosphere but um, earlier this year, an encetite chondrite was looked at, which is an encetite chondrite. Why it's such an interesting thing to look at is because those chondrites are very, like their composition is very similar to Earth. So it's kind of theorized or, or generally accepted that Earth is uh, made up of these accumulations of, of chondrites that took billions and billions of years. What are chondrites again? Meteorites. Meteorites. Got it. Yeah. And uh, the ultimate clue in these chondrites that these researchers were looking at was the amount of hydrogen in these rocks. Because as we know, hydrogen is one of the building blocks for water. H2O, we all love it. We drink it. We should be drinking it two liters a day. Keeps the doctor away. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm going to drink some right now. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. No, me too. And yeah, so... What these researchers found was that there was a lot of hydrogen in these chondrites. Actually, three times as much, they did like a comparison, and they found that there's three times as much water potential in the Earth, like based on these chondrites, than what we currently have in the oceans today. Which means that a lot of the building material for water is just locked in the mantle. Now, just to be clear, it's not like locked in as as water molecules. It's it's the building blocks for it. As we know, oxygen is the most abundant uh, element on the earth. So there's another building block that's just ready to turn into water. I'm I'm like simplifying this a lot. It's 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 complicated chemistry, but still. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, and the other thing that they looked at is the amount of deuterium, which is an isotope of hydrogen that just has one proton and one neutron. And there seems to be this agreement between the amount of or the ratio of deuterium to hydrogen in the encetite chondrites and the deuterium to hydrogen ratio in the mantle, which I guess is is another clue that tells us, okay, so the water, that that is that we have on earth right now in the oceans may have come from the the mantle instead of uh coming from from outer space in these comets and asteroids because they're very similar but yeah as dean as you mentioned before uh science is complicated and there's a lot of factors and it's actually there's there's no perfect correlation between this deuterium ratio in the mantle and the water in the oceans so as it turns out, the deuterium ratio in the oceans is slightly higher, which points to the fact that it wasn't just uh, water that came from from the mantle that is in our in our oceans today. You know, most of it came from uh, the mantle, or like what's what's in the earth right now, or has been for the past billions of years. But it's also there's there's some influence from asteroids or cooler asteroids that brought the the building blocks for water down to the earth because there's no perfect correlation right whenever these debates have whenever i hear someone say was it this or that in science it's usually both i, I always picture that meme with that little girl why not both mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> like that's that's exactly what it usually is we love to we like to put nature in these little neat little baskets where it's like everything is true in this it didn't have anything to do with this. You know, it's usually just like a mix of everything, complexity, this and that. And 
people have all these false dichotomies that they they unknowingly bring into these discussions. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just, you know, I don't think actual scientists are like, it's all this or all that. It's, you know, they're arguing over the ratios of how much of this and how much of that contributed to this and that. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I that's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I, I know that debate often goes back and forth. Like, it's more this and it's more that. And mm-hmm. a lot of times it's like, you know, you ask a geologist what caused it and they'll be like, oh yeah, it's definitely, you know, volcanoes, volcanism. You ask a, a astronomy guy and he'll be like, oh, it's definitely from outer space that did it, you know? <laughs> it's according to our nature to, to try to figure out or pin down the truth, right? And it seems like a little bit of a cop-out to some to say, okay, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Like it's almost, I find that in science, it's almost better to to be really like polarized in a sense, which is kind of weird. Yeah, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe that was the quote that I was thinking about. But I think, yeah, I read a quote somewhere um, that it was like, yeah, it's human instinct to try to pin down the truth. But in reality, why can't it be a combination of things? It most likely is. Like, why are we trying to simplify things when it's vastly more interesting to, to figure out the complexity? Because we have these dumb monkey brains that have a hard time dealing with that complexity. <laughs> yeah, or, or we just choose to ignore that complexity because like yeah. it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around it. Cool, I like that. That's pretty cool. We have that's six. That's six total. Yeah, we just finished. That's six total. We did it. We did it. <laughs> the end. The end of twenty twenty. Well, almost the end for us. Another day. Right. Our listeners will be hearing this in in twenty twenty one though. So yeah. I guess it's Happy New Year's. We have we have some quotes though. We each we each picked a quote. Um, didn't really think too hard on this one, but I wanted to go with something that kind of gives me a little bit of inspiration, despite the uh, hardships that 2020 has uh, definitely hoisted upon a bunch of people. So this quote is from Earl Kaufman, is a geologist, I think, came from a geology textbook. He says it is a great philosophical breakthrough for geologists to accept catastrophe as a normal part of earth history. And I think of that and it's like, yeah, you know, 2020, but could be an asteroid, you know, 2020 wasn't so bad. Think about the earth's history and the cast catastrophes that have hit us. Mm-hmm. Think about the future too. Like what, what, what's to come? We have one more day for that asteroid to hit us. Is that what you're saying, right? Oh no. <laughs> well, you know what? I mean, this, this episode will never, will never be published if that, if an asteroid does hit us. So True. if you're listening to this, we survived. And that is something to be positive about. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm kind of glad that I picked this quote because it doesn't, it, it's just a quote that I pick. It's not really a quote. It's a poem. I'm just, I've been getting into poetry lately and I just thought this was kind of nice. So it's a haiku by Andrew Newell. Escaping at last the carbon in hot gases, will it form life? (laughs) I just, I like the question at the end. It's like, will it form life? Well, now, I mean, in hindsight, we know that it does. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of a quote I heard once where it was like, given, given a few billion years, helium atoms start to wonder where they came from. I could see that. Although most of them have like escaped into the atmosphere, right? They're just kind of floating now. Yeah. Well, I think I think it was helium because of uh, star formation and stuff. But mm, yeah. Okay. I mean, most of them are probably having like an existential crisis right now. Anyway, where am I? <laughs> Each helium atom is wondering if there's another one like it. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, well, before this gets into like a an episode where we're just, you know, trading quotes back and forth, which is obviously something that maybe we'll save for another time. Um, <laughs> I got plenty. I feel like you just have like a list of these quotes somewhere and we can just go through them. I, I literally have books of quotes. I started collecting them like 10 years ago. And some of them I'm just getting through. Like there's there's this one, there's actually it's two books. The quote, the like, I think it's called Quotable Woman. The Quotable Woman. It's just like quotes of like famous women throughout history and there's quote of a woman too it's just like another giant book of like even more i think it's really cool when people have these these complex things distilled into a really cool concept or perspective or takeaway i mean i mean i think quotes are like poetry in that way um you distill like these these huge sentiments in just a few words Mm -hmm. Unless I'm in charge of deciding the quote, and then you get an entire paragraph for the episode. <laughs> yeah, Dean is not good at distilling. Let <laughs> me read you the chapter, the third chapter from this book, <laughs> as my quote. Or, or the Massey lectures. Yeah. Let me just read you the entire lecture. That'll be our episode. Oh, God. It was Tuzo. You can't go short on Tuzo. That's true. That's true. well. I feel bad because I was the one that made that made you shorten it down. Well, yeah, that was shortened. The one that was published was already shortened by like half. It's a good thing, though. It's it, I'm glad that you, you know, do put some sort of constraints, or I'll just go crazy and people will stop listening. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess that's that's a great segue to to thank our our listeners for being with us since July. I think that's when we started. That was when our inaugural episode was. Or if you're just joining now, welcome. Uh, we have a lot of really cool episodes. Thank you for the feedback that we've gotten. Um, from people and, and especially from even professors in the department um, hearing episodes and they became encouraged to, to join us on the podcast after hearing it and, and enjoying it. So thank you for the the critiques and the positive suggestions. Yeah. It's been really fun and it's encouraging. Yeah. Dean and I have had a lot of fun doing this podcast and we're not stopping. So keep up with the new episodes in the new year. And yeah, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful 2021. What is it that we say at the end? And to our listeners, thank you for listening. Keep posted for a new episode of Earth News Interviews in a couple of weeks. And as always, leave no stone unturned. Earth News Interviews is brought to you by the Department of Earth Sciences at U of T. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the official policies of the university. 